Yeah. None of them are <laughs> impacted. <laughs> I think so I'm going to have my drinkable water water as a, a trading asset at that <laughs> at world's end rather than my cryptocurrency. When Matt say. Damon rules the world because he controls all water. <laughs> This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Doogles, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. You know what song's running through my head? No. Well, so one thing, precursor to this, what's hard about this song running through my head is I don't really know how the song goes, but, but with that... Something, 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 down, down, under, some, 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 under. You know what song I'm talking about? USA, USA, USA. <laughs> there it is. There it is. Doogles, you're in, uh, you're in uh, a spot near and dear to my heart. Tell the people where you are. Right now, this very minute, on this very day, which is a day ahead of you, by the way, just to be clear, I am in New Zealand, and I'm down here to watch some Women's World Cup. So we're hanging out in New Zealand for a little bit hanging out in Australia for a little bit. I saw that US game, that opener, which was sloppy, but we won. So it's all right. Maybe we get some kinks out. I'm so excited. I just want to offer this up. I don't get I don't want to get too far away from your exciting adventure, but I think it's time for them to make a docuseries where I dress up as a girl and play on the uh, women's world cup team for the world oh. cup. Like I think Ladybugs? that'd be a good idea. Like the movie Ladybugs? Yeah, basically. I think that would be an absolutely awful <laughs> idea. Yeah. Yeah, let's go ahead and not do that. I will fund however much it takes for that not to happen. Um, you having fun down there? Oh, having a great time. Yeah, it's good. It's cool to be on here. And um, it's a big World Cup for a couple, you know, a couple legends. Megan Rapino, Marta, their last World Cups. I'm glad I got to see Megan play because right? she's not a starter anymore in the team. So it's got to get to that point where it's cool, you know, for them to make subs and bring her in. It was awesome to see that. And I'm excited to see Marta. I'm going to a couple of Brazil games. So it should be cool. So excited. How many, like, is the town overrun? You're in Auckland at the moment, yep. correct? Yep, yep, uh, yep. Is the town overrun with uh, U.S. soccer fans or just soccer fans in general? I wouldn't say overrun, but there are definitely a lot of people wearing United States gear. And then yesterday we saw a, I'd say a significant contingent of folks wearing like Vietnamese flags because of the U.S. Yeah. Vietnam game. Uh, and they did not appear to be people that were from Vietnam. And so I couldn't. They're just America haters. Maybe that's what I couldn't quite yeah, figure I out. Like if, or if they're just contrarians, like if Peter Thiel had sent well, them. Well, I... <laughs> then again, maybe that. I mean, Vietnam's not a terrible flight. Maybe you're just misreading the situation. Could be. Maybe they Could be. came on over. Speaking of misreading, my most fun topic I hit on. I'm dipping in the fishbowl here, by the way. My uh, most fun topic that I hit on that I came across this week was this post from March. March of 2023, titled Robots Have Been About to Take take All the Jobs for 100 Years. I had so much fun reading this piece, and I call it misreading because what, so per, per the title, right, you can hear it in the title, basically from the early 20th century, there have been tons of headlines that were automations taking all the jobs, robots are taking over, it's the end of mankind, right, all this, which we're seeing a bunch of it today. What I thought would be fun is I just want to hit on some of the headlines and topics that I covered because yeah. I I I love this kind of stuff. I I love it when 
you know, history doesn't repeat it rhymes type ish. I love it when we we get into such a this is definitively what's going to happen type of mode in the media and you go, well, we definitively believed this five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, et cetera. All right. So hundo years, hey, hundo years. I'm gonna go through some of the titles. Here's one. World ills laid to machine by Einstein. Okay, that's one from the same period. And this is from uh, 1920s here. Murder of music laid to machines. <laughs> I, I love that one because that's definitively one that we've heard so many times. The murder. Why is music being murdered by machines? Is this like the record player? Is that what's happening? The radio. Oh, the radio. Okay. <laughs> yeah, not at all. Cool, Jay. This was 50 years, 60 years before LL. Okay, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep going. Ready for some more fun? All right, so let's fast forward <laughs> just a, just a little bit. Here we go. The faithful donkey is passing. So this is when like cars <laughs> were starting to <laughs> to become a bigger thing. Yep. The donkey is the donkey will become unemployed. Is what Do you happened. know how many donkeys we put out of work? I still feel bad for them. So many donkeys. So many donkeys. donkeys. Yeah. The donkeys didn't even know. You know that's that's the most unfortunate part. The donkeys actually were probably like, hold on, so I can just hang out here and eat all day? Like, I don't need to yeah, go out. Like, this like, is donkey, way cool. Yeah. Donkey was cool with it. So there's all this talk of automation. Automation's terrible, right? We got to stop this automation. Government, why don't, you, why don't you step in with regards to automation? And Henry Ford wrote this op-ed in the New York Times. And he says, there are those who appear honestly to think that the only way to return idle men to work is to destroy the one thing that makes their jobs possible. I think that is a, it's like like a quintessential line. Should I repeat that? I mean, I like Henry Ford. Always have. I want to be clear about one thing. Uh, Henry Ford is an anti-Semite, and so that's not what we're talking about here. But from a business perspective. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, I have some respect for the assembly line. Can I just say There you go. There you go. There you go. Significant. Um, I wasn't talking about any of the other. I'm sorry. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so the but this this kind of says it all because a lot of times when we uh, with many things, not just AI automation right now, but when we talk as human beings about how something is going to be destroyed, it ignores the power of it. And we're not completely ignoring the power of for right now AI. So, but 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 that's kind of what he's saying. I think here. There are those who appear honestly to think that the only way to return idle men to work is to destroy the one thing that makes their jobs possible. Because what he's saying is if you look at what they're doing, to your point, in the assembly line and automation and how they figured out how to do things more efficiently and effectively in building cars, he's saying that's why I'm able to employ folks. And Henry Ford, he did a, a few innovations with regard to work. He increased the wage of his people. He paid them more. He decreased the number of hours, the number of days. Uh, they were able to to work. And so he's saying automation's allowing us to do this, to give our employees better lives, right, in a number of ways. So yeah. I think that's fascinating. There's this 1961 article, and this this could have been taken out of like last month. 1961 article. Title is Automation Might End Most Unskilled Jobs in 10 Years. 1961. This is the two zero deuce trace right now that we're in right now. So we're talking about 62 years later at the lowest unemployment rate or near lowest unemployment rate we've had since this article came out. Same old story, man. Same old story. All right. 1980. 
a robot is after your job. The 1961, 1961 one, we were talking about unskilled labor. This article, a robot is after your job, this New York Times piece, is about how it's going to be the the quote unquote white collar or skilled labor force that's about to get hit with the thunder. So very similar what we're talking about right now. 1995, Jeremy Rifkin came out with a book called The End of Work that talked about a post-market era, how the roots of societal crime are a workless world. And this, if this trend continues, it quote unquote threatens to undermine the very foundations of modern society. So you get the point. That's decades. I just went from the 1920s to 1995 there. I'm going to skip forward in this very incredibly scientific recent research I just did where I Googled risk of AI and employment yeah. and looked at the first like six news articles that came up. 27% of jobs at risk from AI, chat GPT and the rise of AI, which jobs are most at risk? AI risks require China and US to work together. More jobs in danger as AI-based systems continue to dominate with further advancements. Law and finance may be at risk of automation from AI. You get the same point. And this is not to say that Automation has never had an impact on negative or positive. It's not to say that AI won't have an impact. It's just it's the same old story that we 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 tend to, and we talked about this on the pod before, we tend to go the full enchilada, casa bonita when we're talking about this stuff. And we say it's going to ruin everything. The world's coming to an end. And many times it does more good than harm in the end. We figure out how to how to control it. Not how to control it. We figure out how to use it in a way that's beneficial um, and it does have negative consequences to a certain extent but it's just not as far as what we end up predicting in the future or, or predicting in the past i'll pause see what you think i mean almost always it has positive consequences because we adapt and yeah yeah yeah, yeah. henry ford's point there is if we aren't pushing things forward someone else will be and we'll lose our competitive advantage and i won't have jobs for people that's true throughout time. So yeah, yeah. Um, my favorite example of this is if you go back and read The Grapes of Wrath and they talk about oh, the yeah. big bag, bad tractor and how it's yep. going, you know, how many jobs is that going to cost us? We just move on. Uh, this perspective always exists. I appreciate you bringing it up. It's the donkey. It got rid of the donkey. Did it ever. I'm going to bridge into the fishbowl. Can you handle this being halfway across the world? Am I allowed to get my rants? Rant away. So this uh, blog post is called Problem of Valuation by Nick Majuli. At least that's how we say it on the show, of dollarsanddata.com. Nick often does really awesome work, but this piece I just cannot vibe with. So he talks through how current valuation metrics, and you can use a whole bunch of them. You can use Buffett's favorite metric. You can use Schiller Cape. You can use um, some research by John Hussman. And yep. they basically all say the same thing. They say, U.S. stocks are overvalued, and over the next seven to ten years, we expect negative returns. And to be We've clear, we're talking about the, the show, it's, Doodles, it, right? Yeah, it's, it's the macro valuation metrics, not like discounted cash flow of a particular stock. We're talking about like high-level, big cheese macro metrics. Yeah, and then he goes on to say, "Well, that doesn't really matter. Uh, I'm going to simplify here uh, because." The world is different than it was in 1970 or 1940. And he specifically talks about 1940 and how challenging it would be to buy a basket of stocks, um, what the expenses might look like, all the hoops you'd have to jump through to do that. And yep. basically comes to the conclusion that it's no wonder um, valuation metrics are elevated 
it's much easier to buy stocks now than it used to be. And so he says he expects valuation metrics continue to be elevated, which goes against my basic core hypothesis that almost all things mean revert and obviously gets me really fired up. Which I, I can understand from you. Do you want to say a couple more points before we start? So here comes the rant. Rant away. You can look at, there's there's all sorts of data out there that says the percent of households that own uh, stocks. And it's not significantly elevated right now. It's tough to get that number in 1940, which is his main example here. But over the last 20 to 40 years, it's pretty easy to get that number. And we're right in spec with where we would be. So if you're making this argument that it's easier to own stocks and therefore more people own stocks. And because of that, you have inflated values and that's the new normal and that will continue. It's completely flawed logic. You can make a couple other arguments that kind of make sense here, Dougals. You can say, well, interest rates have been historically low and in the grand scheme of things, they're still pretty low. And so people are parking more money in stocks than they would typically and that cause elevated stocks. The problem with that is the data doesn't really show that either. The total amount of wealth held in equities is not drastically different from its long-term norms. There's, there's no good basis for an argument here that basically says this time is different. And it just it's frustrating to me because I think when all the data points one direction, effectively that the US stock market is overvalued, coming out and coming up with the hypothesis that doesn't appear to be supported by facts, um, that's supported by a story rather than actual data, just drives me crazy. I can't imagine how making an investment in the U.S. stock market and planning on average to above average returns for the next decade is a wise bet. There's a few things in here, and I think your your broader point I agree with. There are a couple of points I'll bring up with regard to what, what Nick is saying. One is the there's an assumption, an implicit assumption, that when when we talk about mean reversion, we're talking about exact, precise numbers, meaning that if the historical average Schiller Cape ratio is 15.5, that the market will come back to 15.5. There's kind of there's an, an, an implicit assumption in what he's stating that that's what people are discussing or saying when um, we're talking about mean reversion, which is not the case. It's there's like a a, a bound range, right? That that we're talking about, right? And when you take an when you take an uh, an average, you're gonna get an exact number, but that's not what we're talking about. And so I think that's one point that's interesting. And if you if he makes the argument that that 15.5 average, because people are willing to take a take lower returns in the future, is actually going to be 16.9, go okay. Who cares? It, it's like not worth writing a piece yeah. about the. But the other. The other point I'll bring up, going to what I just said there, is that people are willing to what you stated. He's saying it's easier to buy stocks, it's easier to diversify, and it's cheaper. So therefore, people are participating and people are willing to take a lower future return and therefore willing to buy in at higher valuations. That's one of the points he makes. And when you look at some of the data that we've thrown on the show a bunch, what people's expected future returns are. They're not lower. Yeah. No, it's not like the world is saying, I used to make 8% of stock market and I'm perfectly, my expectation is to make 3% annually going forward. No, people's expectation is to make 16% annually going forward, which is insane. It's not supported by data, especially <laughs> at elevated valuations, but that's how humans are. Yeah. And to your point before, it's a, it's a, 
it's odd to read something like this from Nick for me. That is and nothing against Nick. Look, one thing that I enjoy is people taking perspectives in pieces because it creates conversation. And so that's cool. It just it's odd to read something that isn't a um, I see Nick more so throw out knowingly put things out there for discussion. He's like, here's some here's like a story or a narrative and and it's up for up for discussion or debate or or maybe it's just like a broad theme. And this just seems more pointed. And uh, it almost seems like, and maybe it's because this came from him responding to a tweet that he was asked to respond to by a listener. So maybe that's why, but mm-hmm. it seems more pointed and wrong, which is not, you don't want to be more pointed and wrong. We call it aggressively bad here on the Skippy and Dougal show. And that, that's hey, kind of strange. We me. like Nick. So that's, uh, it's not yeah, exactly. Nick. It's just no. a talking point for us. But here's, so I don't have the percentage of Americans that own Stockton in 1940. I couldn't find oh, that low. stat. But list, just in the last 24 years, here's a stat I have readily available, the percentage of Americans own stock. In 1998, about 60% of Americans own stock. And as of 2021, it's 56%. If things are so much easier and people, if you go with this hypothesis, so like, oh, well, now you just hit a few buttons on your phone instead of even in 1998, you know how complicated it was to like drive down to the Edward Jones or hop on the American online to do what I like. It's way easier than it was in 1998. With that yeah. hypothesis, you say more of the population should own stocks and actually less of the population own stocks. I just don't think this holds water. And I, I mean, I'm willing to bet for what it's worth that there's a high, high probability that a decade from now, U.S. stocks will be worth about the same or less than they're worth currently. Like it's just that's what the valuation implies, and I really don't think the world's different. The last thing I'd say when you talk about Shiller Cape, there's some really good arguments to be made that accounting changes that have happened in the yes. last twenty or thirty years lead to that equation basically being calculated differently, which makes the last thirty years of Shiller Cape the mean there is different than the mean if you go back a hundred plus years. And yep. I'll listen to that all day long. You can argue that, hey, changes in the macro environment, changes in accounting principles mean that the new norm is slightly higher than the previous norm. Yep. That being said, we're still where, well north of that new norm. And to say that that is going to continue for the foreseeable future seems like poor advice. Yeah. Yeah. So Nick, love your writing. Keep writing because it's valuable. And... If you want to come on the show and talk about it, I'm down to. Can I reach in the fishbowl? <laughs> yeah, did you like that? Please do. <laughs> All right, I'm going to reach in the fishbowl. And we talk about inequity, financial literacy a bunch, how to uh, help to improve financial literacy in America and get more money in more people's pockets. And there was this Wall Street Journal piece this week that was discussing providing kindergartners in San Francisco with savings accounts, with bank accounts uh, that could be used for uh, education. And I I think that this whole you you might read if if folks want to Google about this you can Google things about child savings accounts uh, child development accounts there's there's a good amount uh, that's been researched in the last I think like decade around this and I found this piece to be interesting so here's what happened San Francisco 600 low income public school students in San Francisco were given bank accounts in 2011 with fifty dollars each in them this was a program that looked to um, talk about like interest rates and the importance of savings in schools. It's good stuff. And the uh, there are a couple few takeaways that I had from this this article. 
One is that a number of the people that they thought they talked to with this article were saying that just having, even though it's a small sum, having some money that was provided to them got them thinking about savings. It was a mindset sh shift, got them thinking about college. And so one example they provided was someone named Tierra Ferrand, and her $50 that she was provided in 2011 became $1,500 today as she's about to go into college. And that $1,500 she's going to use to uh, to pay for not tuition so much, tuition is too high, but things like um, expenses outside of tuition, books, right, fees, stuff like that, and is really grateful for it. And so this program uh, has now gives $50 to every student, uh, the public school student in San Francisco. There are 52,000 active accounts with a balance of $15 million that are sitting there. What they've said is that most people that are given the $50 don't add to their balances, but a quarter of the families do. I, I didn't get a breakdown here as to the demographics of the quarter of the families that do, but I could assume that it's it's mostly people that um, are of, a, of like a, a higher income bracket, mostly that are probably taking this fifty dollars, continue to add to it. Uh, but anyway, but I, I thought that, that point was interesting. And the last point, and then I'll pause for you. The last point was they were saying that one of the things that could be really helpful for more people adding to that fifty dollars is providing them with navigation and uh, reminders, insights, right, and guidance around it. And one of the examples they gave there was someone named Talia Miller. And so she was enrolled in the program in kindergarten as well. So part of that same class of uh, that Tierra was in. And she said, one day we got this letter that says, okay, you have $50 and we just threw it away. And she wishes that more people would take advantage of it, but if it has to be explained more in order for people to do that. Uh, and I think that that's like a, it's a huge point. And Tierra Ferran's mother who agrees um, she said that now that Tierra is going to college, she's thinking about it more because she just kind of, it seemed like they let the $50 sit for a while. But as college started coming closer, she's thinking about it more. And so now she says, our family contribution is not as much as I would have liked it to have been when I look back. Uh, she would have, she wished she could have put in $25, right? Instead of having put in $5. And I, I love the amounts that are being talked about here because it relates to what we talked about last week, where it's saving anything is really helpful. There's like a muscle that you build. So I'll pause there. See what you think about this. Yeah, I thought this was a pretty cool experiment. I um I have tons of thoughts here. One is I've heard people pitch for states like Wyoming, South Dakota, others that tend to have really low populations but run a budget surplus, often because of like natural resources, that they should offer like baby bonds effectively, where you give a significant portion of money to people that have kids in your state and that gets automatically invested in the stock market or some other combination. And then it just sits for the first 18 to 30 years of their life. And you might just, if that was enacted just for being born in Wyoming, you might have 150K it's sitting aside for you 20 years later that is like effectively free. And it's a nice way to reinvest in your citizens and encourage more people to move to a place where... So it, my mind goes to things like that. In this case, the dollars here, Dougals, are effectively nothing. It, it's 50 bucks. They're where small. I went with the San Francisco experiment is like, think of all the things that I'm sure that school district spends money on that they might be able to 
outsource labor with a reward system. And it could be little things like um, if kids don't go to school, the school might hire a vice principal or some disciplinary figure to try and get people to behave better or attend school more frequently or all these sorts of things. With a bank account set up like this, if those individuals are motivated by money, you might be able to incentivize people to attend school and save yourself a $100,000 salary. And it might only cost you $20,000 in incentives that could go to these kids. You could have all sorts of really cool incentive structures. I agree. There's a lot that if you take this general topic of incentives, uh, there's a lot to end up playing around with. And one of the uh, the people that they mention in in this piece is I is someone named William Elliot the uh, third. He's uh, he's out of Michigan, and he has uh, he has some when you look when you look into the research that he's done that's around this topic. Part of the basis of it is looking at the difference between asset based and debt based financing, and how when someone has assets, the the there's a mindset shift. And that individual of like, I own something, this is mine, there's agency that gets folks to participate more. And I, and I think that that it makes sense to me, generally speaking. Um, and I think that's kind of a fascinating line of thinking. To your point, uh, the dollar figures are relatively low, specifically with this one, which makes me think that it's even, it shows even more strongly that it's a mindset change, not a, uh, it's not the money in and of itself they'll end up having to buy something. It's it's trying to get folks to uh, to just feel, I'll say, more agency over their future finances and therefore pot- potentially be more participatory. Uh, so that, that's what I think is most interesting about this, p- this point. In, in my crazy thought experiment here, what if you got $50 to open an account at kindergarten and then you got $50 every year that you missed less than yeah. seven days of school and you got $10 for every beer better you got. And like, you could do the math, right? And you could say, so if you're a student that attends school frequently, that gets decent grades and does these other things, they even talked about incentivizing people for um, different types of like performances, I think like choir and other things. Yeah, You could say like, you have the ability to have $3,000 for college if you just are a model student. And where I where I'm going with that is I think that the district as a whole would save way more than a $3,000 investment if they could count on kids that they had to oversee and discipline less. It's, it's this is, but not everyone would operate like that, right? What percentage yeah, of right. students would that work for? I don't know if it's 10% or if it's 50%. Yeah, that's right. I'm going to make a, a, a slight pivot just to talk about incentives a little bit from, and this is, this is live reporting from, from down here in New Zealand. You ready for some live reporting? Yes. And by live, I mean something that happened yesterday. Yesterday, having a conversation with someone that lives here in Auckland, and again, on the topic of incentives, there were two things that I found to be fascinating. So they're involved in the the venture capital and startup scene down here in New Zealand. And one thing they said is New Zealand doesn't have a capital gains tax. Which, oh, I'm moving. Yeah. So yeah. which which is which is Done. that? There, there, there's that. The second thing is he said, in order to incentivize VC funding of New Zealand companies, if you raise a fund as a venture capitalist and those dollars, you pledge those dollars to go to other New Zealand-based organizations, 
the government matches the amount that you raise. So you raise a $100 million fund, government gives you another $100 million. That, Do you have to be a citizen for that? Because I would move. I don't I think, think so. I could move tomorrow. No, I don't think so. Wow. And But there are, I mean, read all the fine print. But I'm not even done yet. I'm not even done yet. How how do venture capitalists make money? <laughs> Is that a trick question? No, straight up question. You invest in early stage companies that hopefully grow and become much more valuable. Yes. How else? Um, you play tax games. What are you? I don't know what you're going for. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. I'm. I shouldn't be. So venture capitalists. What you just stated. Venture capitalists make money off of the returns that come from where they invest, and there's also the carry. That was the. Uh, so you you take the and it's not just like hedge funds. Uh, you you take the total amount of assets that you have, and there's a percentage of that that you get as a management fee. So if you think mm-hmm. about the fact that you raise a hundred million dollar fund and the government gives you another hundred million, what he was saying was your carry comes from the total amount that you have. Yeah, it doubles. Yeah, so it's not just you. Not only have more free money to invest with which to make a return, you also get double the management fee that you have as a venture capitalist with free money from the government. That is like quite an incentive. Yeah. That is quite an incentive structure. And as I mentioned, there's no capital gains tax. You're trying to blow the roof off this mother, as they say here down in New Zealand. That's wild money. And it's uh, absolutely fascinating. Okay. Uh, I'm going to stay on the investing topic, but uh, shift to a recommendation. And I can't wait for next week. What... uh Australian tax loopholes you're going to have for us as you migrate <laughs> over there, Deagles. This is good stuff. Keep the reporting coming. We'll do. have to do some research on that. So, uh, great podcast. Best I've listened to outside of the Skippy Deagles show in at least a couple months was Invest Like the Best with Jeremy Giffen. And he is a small investor. Uh, it's titled Special Situations in Private Mar- Markets. I just really like his perspective of the world. He's a big fan of sabbaticals. He's a big fan of managing work-life work life balance, but he's also uh, found a niche in uh, small company investing that I think is uh, really profitable and uh, deserves more great talent there. There's a quote from there. I'm not going to do it verbatim, Douglas, but I want to start with a high-level recommendation. And then I want to talk about one thing that he said that has re- really just had me thinking all week. So he says, it's extremely puzzling in a world where uh, a lot of people can cover their basic needs in terms of food and shelter that so many people, the grand majority of people spend their life doing things they don't like doing. And he's just referring to like the nine to five job that maybe people don't love. And he talks about that in greater detail around what in the human psyche actually causes that mismatch where like he says, a lot of people, not all people, but a lot of people in developed economies like the US effectively have a, a relatively easy way to pay for their p- food and shelter, yet they still choose to do kind of the status quo rather than you know follow their true compass and do something that they might love. And? That's it? You don't have any thoughts? <laughs> no, I, w- I want to know what your... What's what do you take away from that? That's what I want to know. It just you rings people, really true to me. Like people should, and I'm not sure why. Pursue more things that they love, or what's your? Yeah, absolutely. Your point. Don't you? Yes. So I. What's the right way to put this? Here's what I think. I do think that. So we've got to work. People have to work in order to make money. Uh, when you work, 
you're not necessarily going to love the thing that you do. If you can find something that you love, like that's fantastic. I don't want people to take it. My, my concern is that I don't want people, I don't want people to take that as an expectation that if you don't love the job you go to every day, that life is terrible, which it seems like is where some people end up taking that thread. Does that make sense? Okay. So there's, there's two things going on here and I understand your pause. One is there's a optimism that's required to say, um, even if you're a janitor or what I'm just throwing out a, a job, like you can still have a fantastic life and you can show up and work hard and you can be proud of what you do. And that can be a fulfilling cycle, even if you don't feel like you're born to be a janitor in the stupid example of mine. I totally follow that train of thought. Yep. But what I see more often is people feel stuck. People feel on the, they're, they're trapped in this rat race. <laughs> it's literally called a rat race for a reason, because sometimes it feels like you're running on this treadmill to nowhere. And you do that for four years until your health fails you. And then you die or whatever. Like that's yeah. what I'm trying to say is, yeah. I'd like more people to step out of the rat wheel and just evaluate things fairly because you even, you even mentioned it here, Dugos, you said like people have to work to pay their bills. I don't know that it's as much about that as it is that there's a mindset that you have to do that. And there's not a ton of creative thought around um, whatever. I'm 10 years into the workforce. I understand how the game works. Now, can I be creative about structuring that game in a way that works for me and my family and allows me to do something I'm truly passionate about. I just don't see many people seeming to have that debate with themselves. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And what I what I want to separate out is, and I think you, you may also be separating this out, but I don't want to put words in your mouth. What I want to separate out is stepping back and thinking about the work that you're doing and asking the questions right that that, that are being raised here versus also acknowledging that the way that at least the US society works today is money is necessary in order to pay your bills in order to you know have your rent or mortgage to buy food and maybe sometimes a job's a job you know that that's those are the so I think you should ask the question sometimes even ask the question of where can I find joy in my job, which is a little bit different than where can I find a job that brings me joy? Both of those are worth asking. Uh, but that that's just where I, I, I think that sometimes I, I agree with the broader point, by the way, uh, the, the part that I, I think can become a little bit dangerous for folks is when you set an expectation that the thing that I wake up to go do every day has to be a, an ultimately fulfilling happiness bringing you know, nirvana of a, of an experience. And I think people actually set the so, expectation too high for themselves. And that's going to say, yeah, you know, um, it's fascinating. I didn't think I was going to get this pushback from you. I appreciate it. I'm not as well prepared to like fully articulate this position as I should be. So what I'm going to tell people is go listen to the podcast. I think Jeremy does a really <laughs> good job of describing this. And the thing that Jeremy doesn't make clear is like, it, when he talks about the people that seem to have their basic needs for food and sheltered cover, is he talking about you know, like your top 10% of earners in the U S or I thought he was talking more like maybe your top 50% of earners in the U S that have some flexibility. And what I see is it seems from afar, like people don't even think about other possibilities. They just say, yeah. I have bills to pay. And so this is what I'm going to do. And 
Jeremy seemed really gifted in articulating that having thoughts, like thinking through that and making a conscious decision around what's best for you in a really complex situation, Dougals, where you have to judge happiness of you, your family, paying the bills, putting shelter on your, like, I'm not pretending this is easy. I just say, listen to the podcast because you've got me thinking about this and I wish I could better articulate his points or at least his points as I understood them, Uh, but fascinating stuff. Yeah. I, I agreed. Just giving a, a different perspective on that, but I agree with that broader point. Love it. Should we discuss the Fed? Yeah, I bet you have a different perspective on this now. Fed now. <laughs> so <laughs> you try. I can only laugh because this is like classic government, right? On on June twentieth, the Federal Reserve Financial Services Twitter account, <laughs> which is <laughs> announced that the Fed. <laughs> has launched a FedNow service, which allows banks and credit unions to transfer money on behalf of their customers instantly, any time of day, any time of the year. This effectively ushers in the instant payments era, Dougals. Like, this is fascinating. It's still kind of like it's live, but it's not live to every financial institution. It obviously is not decentralized, but there's a lot of like crypto-ish technology here in terms of like, a real-time ledger, instant payments, I think, are a game changer uh, when it relates to, you know, we're all used to transfer electronically transferring things between one financial institution to another and it taking three to five days and being like, that's kind of ridiculous. We've all also seen the folks like PayPal try and charge you a 1% fee for an instantaneous transfer when, you know, the other transfer takes two to five days or something. So, more than anything, I'm just excited to see how this plays out. It feels like we're stuck in the 80s. If you look at the graphic the Federal Reserve released, it looks like they're announcing something <laughs> in the 80s as cutting edge. <laughs> but uh, and actually, I'm looking at this tweet now. Uh, gosh, it got 162,000 views. That's not many in the grand scheme of things. <laughs> just tells you how many people care about uh, what the Federal Reserve has to say in terms of electronic payments. Don't don't banks want it to take three to five days? Well, so in the old, I bet you know this, Diggles, but I bet our average listener doesn't. In the old school world, uh, the bank would actually get, in today's world, but long, long ago, the banks would have the money deposited in their accounts like two days before um, they'd actually show you that the money was in their accounts so they could make some interest on that. And the example of that is if you run payroll for a company, very often that payroll is processed on a Wednesday or before in order for the funds to show up in the client's and your employees' accounts on a Friday. So I'm not sure what the banks want because some people on the progressive side in the fintech space have already eliminated that, felt like it wasn't fair to the consumer, but I don't know. Yeah, I what I'm because I this is a legitimate question because I don't know how all this stuff works in the back end is I'm curious as to whether this is technology that allows for the transfer to happen instantly or if there's it's a de-risking like it de-risks the bank in a certain way which gives them the uh like they're no longer disincentivized to transfer right away because there's a more liability. Like I what what is the unlock? I think is the primary question that I ask. Does that question make sense? Yeah. And I haven't done a really deep dive on this, okay. but my yeah. understanding is simply that 
it's basically more of a real-time ledger that is backed by the Fed. So it's okay. certainly oh, right. okay. the yeah, bank. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's a positive step forward. I actually think this will be one of the bigger real world, the, the real world use case for this, whether it's businesses sending money back and forth or individuals, if this rolls out as they think, as they claim it is going to roll out, I think this will have a big impact on our day-to-day financial lives. We'll see. It's cool. Good job, Fed. <laughs> yeah, 10 years late. <laughs> yes. Um, Google, do you want... I, I don't think we even need to do this, but the one use case I had for crypto that was non-Bitcoin uh, probably was... I mean, the, there's still a lot of cool potential use cases out there, but one was like remittances payments yes, international. instantaneously to other countries. Now, the this is backed by the Fed, so it's not like a worldwide instantaneous payment system. I'm sure it will eventually tie into the EU's and, and Japan's and everyone else's instantaneous payment systems but like this can't be good for your average crypto name can it i mean everything's already pretty bad for the average crypto name i would say but no (laughs) no i mean the to what you stated near the beginning of when you were talking about this is what they still have is decentralized aspect of it and that to me still says your crypto becomes most valuable when the rest of the world burns to the ground but there are still servers. The rest of the world has to burn yeah, down. The rest still of the world's in trouble, servers. but there's reliable power and everyone's still plugging away on their computers. Yeah. The I, three people I'll that believe are, it when I see it. That are controlling back into Bitcoin or whatever, whatever that was. I can't remember exactly what that was. Like oh, yeah. Still... A team of five. Yeah. Volunteers. Yeah. <laughs> None of them are impacted. <laughs> I think so I'm going to have my drinkable water, water as a trading asset at that. <laughs> at world's end rather than my cryptocurrency when matt saying. damon rules the world because he controls all water <laughs> anything else in your fishbowl uh no that's it for me i got one thing uh we'll put it on the subsec we might do a deeper dive later it's um in curbed it's curbed.com which i think is part of the new york magazine and it does a, a huge breakdown um it's a blog post but it's like 40 minutes worth of audio to give you some idea. It's a mini book almost. Uh, talks specifically about what they are branding as the office apocalypse in New York City. Crazy amount of information, real life tours of vacant office spaces, a discussion around uh, what the vacancy means, the evolution of class A office space moving to maybe stuff that's not class A office space. Really fascinating stuff. And it tries to predict where we're headed um, and specifically where New York City is headed. I think there's three big points here, Dougals, that come out crystal clearly that I think are important. One is there's gonna, there, we have a crisis here, especially in New York City, probably in San Francisco and other places. And there's going to be people that learn significant subs of money because there's simply not the demand for office space that there used to be. And a lot of this is highly levered property like it's it's all other people's money so there's gonna be blood in the streets here but i think the other points that are really important is people are already working to address this the most popular thing that's discussed is converting office space to retail space because right now there's too much office space and too little retail space that's not an easy transition by any means but it's something that will happen and that kind of leads me to the third point which i actually find optimistic with this article is simply that 
when humans face a crisis like this, they adapt, they get creative, they find a way to get to the other side. And I think that's going to be a really fun story to watch because there will be some positive outcomes here. I just don't know that anyone knows what they actually are, but people are already trying to get creative to solve some of these challenges. Human humans are infinitely creative. And to go back to where we started in this conversation around the 100-year robot takeover, it's been two years, roughly, since vaccines hit the airwaves. And so, therefore, it was, I'll call it possible for people to go back to work, go back to the office, I mean. Yeah. And we are taking that two years of data and extrapolating the crap out of it, meaning that people are never going back to the office. I'm not, you're not saying this, by the way, I'm, I'm not saying that you're saying it, but in general, it feels like if I were not, not to make a, a micro prediction, but just to say, in if, if I were a betting man on this, I'd go, people are going back to the office. I'm not saying next month. I'm not saying next year. I don't know, but it's only been a couple of years. And with the fullness of time, in my view, maybe let me state this. Maybe maybe I won't even say the office. I'll state it this way. People are going to participate in the activities that are going to be most efficient and effective to drive the highest volume of dollars. And by people, I mean companies, like the people that work for companies. Yeah. It's so complex. So what's going? there's like 50 factors at play here. Right now, humans extrapolate the short-term trend and say that's it's going to last forever and it never does, right? The, the, that's we know that but yeah. right now people are saying well at previous price points with the layoffs that have happened in my company and the current turmoil like the office doesn't make as much sense as it made five years ago but here's what happens in some cases the price to rent that same office is going to be 50 percent of what it was before that changes mm -hmm. the equation and you might not you might not need as much space but you might still need some other space some of that might convert to residential all of a sudden if there's more residential in your previous business districts there might be people that live in that residential that says you know what i'd love to go to the office when it's a five block walk i didn't like going to the office when it was a 45 minute drive like there's just going to be so much that changes here that the only thing I can guarantee is an extrapolation of the last two years is not going to be what's the case in 2025. But yeah. I have no clue what we'll ultimately end up with, especially in a place like New York, because there, according to tracking that's done by Cushman and Wakefield, the current Manhattan office vacancy rate is about 22%, which is the highest on record. And they started recording records in 1984. I mean, it's different <laughs> yes. than it ever has been. Yeah. I mean, we we had the first global pandemic of this size since they started recording. Of course, it's different two years later. I fully agree <laughs> with your point. You, you know, I mean, but that, that's the whole thing. And I think you stated it really well when I was starting to put out a macro, I'll just call it a prediction, in the out out in the airwaves and i think what you said around it's on the sorry i was state i was stating like the prediction of the positive side of what might yeah. happen and i think what you stated is more accurate of the thing that we know i i will say the thing that i would have full confidence in of what won't happen is an extrapolation of what we've seen over the last two years it doesn't make sense for that to be the full future because this is a fully different time 
than what we've seen over the last 40 years because of a global pandemic. So we will shift, we'll adapt, who knows exactly what the future will look like, but extrapolating that is not the answer. Yeah, I completely agree. And shout out where it's due here. This is uh, in New York Magazine by Andrew Rice. A really nice piece, I think. Uh, Does a great level of detail on what's happening there in real time. Good conversation today. Because I think that, yeah, that means we're going to wrap it. So there's two ways we wrap. One is by chanting USA. USA, USA. USA. Are they going to get, is this right? I don't know the World Cup that well. They get a star if they win, right? So if they three-peat, it'd be the fifth star. Is that right? I, I don't know about stars. That sounds like a kindergarten thing. I think they're going for the fifth star. I'll have yeah. to research that. But uh, that's right. You enjoy your time down under. Show wise, hit listener mail, skippydoogles at gmail.com. Premium subscriptions, which helps support the show, skippydoogles.supercast.com. Anything else, Doogles? That's it. Thank you, everybody. Appreciate you listening.